The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. I'm wondering, how has your winter been for you this year? Here in Toronto, we are getting used to the unusual. You see, when I was a kid, our winters were freezing cold and very snowy. And we had to bundle up to go outside. So we kids wore these goofy one-piece snowsuits and big puffy boots to keep us warm and dry. But for the past couple of years, things have been quite different. In fact, this winter I've been able to go for a walk most days wearing sneakers and a light winter coat. And instead of snow, we've had a lot of rain. It's really very strange. And while our winter this year has been wet... The summer was very dry. In July, I spent hours and hours dragging hoses around the park, watering our poor parched fruit trees. It made me start to think, what on earth is it like growing fruit trees in a desert? So in the first half of the show, I am going to find out. I'll interview Greg Peterson of Urban Farm U. Through his website, urbanfarm.org, Greg teaches city dwellers from across North America how to grow food and how to become an urban farmer. Now, Greg knows very well about the problems of growing fruit trees in the desert, and that's because he lives in one. He's a resident of hot, dry Phoenix, Arizona, and he's going to talk to us about growing conditions there in the first half of the show. Now, When we grow fruit trees, we're usually taking plants that grew naturally in other parts of the world, and we're trying to adapt them to our climate and conditions. But what if we start thinking about things another way? My second guest is Russ Cohen from Massachusetts, and he encourages us to consider growing native edible plants. These native plants can be easier to grow and delicious, according to Russ, He'll share his secrets about how easy it can be to grow native edible plants from seed. He'll talk about plants, including wild strawberries, hazelnuts, or beach plums, and lots more in the second half of the show. 
So get ready to email in your questions and comments during the live show. Our email is instudio101 at gmail.com and it would be great to hear from you. But now on the line is Greg Peterson of Urban Farm U. Greg, how are you today? Hey, I am great. I'm so glad you're doing well. What's the weather like over there? Oh, man, it is cold, and we're getting, like, feet and feet of snow here right now. Somehow I doubt that. (laughs) (laughs) You're pulling my leg. That's what I tell all the people that that ask me about it here, because it's actually beautiful. It's going to be 74 today. That's Fahrenheit. Um, And uh, sunny. Uh, I was just out in the backyard in my bare feet, um, watering some trees, so... Well, that sounds awesome. Well, before we dive in, I'd love to know, just can you tell me a little bit about Urban Farm U? What is it that you teach there? Sure. Uh, My goal in life is to transform our global food system. And so over the past, and I've been working on this goal now for 40-some years, and what I do through Urban Farm U is I put together uh, easy-to-understand courses for people to jump in and learn about uh, growing food. The basics is our basic gardening class. We've got an introduction to permaculture course called Permaculture City with Toby Hemingway, who unfortunately recently passed away. Um, We've got a aquaponics class and a seed saving class. Our seed saving course is amazing. So we we do a lot of online content and online free webinars and online classes. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So when you are not teaching online, you're there growing food yourself, getting your hands dirty. So tell me a little bit more about, I mean, I would think growing in Phoenix, you've got a lot of benefits. You've got lots of sunshine. You're not grappling with the kind of winter that we grapple with. But what are the challenges that you face in growing fruit trees in particular? One of the cool things about growing in Phoenix is that we can grow all year round. And the hardest time to grow is in the summer, in, you know, July, August, and September, when it can get up to 120 degrees, which I think is, if my my brain does the math right, it's like 46, 47 uh, C, um, you know, which is really hot. So that's the hardest time of the year to grow. But, you know, it's, if we're not dealing with snow, (laughs) you know, when you're dealing with snow, you actually can't grow things. But if we're dealing with heat, we can actually put up shade structures. And I always encourage people to, to um, grow shade structures that, you know, that you can eat, like grapes. Or, um, you know, here we have some native desert edibles that you, your next guest is going to be talking about natives. We do a lot here with natives that get larger and can provide shade on the western, you know, from the wet, basically afternoon shade for us. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, you're right. It does give you some flexibility to be able to shade the trees a bit, where whereas we're desperate to get a little bit more sun on our trees. So, yeah. But um, tell me, what are the biggest mistakes that people make there when when they plant fruit trees? So there's so I've been doing my urban farm fruit tree program education program for 17 years now, and often people will call me or email me and say, hey, listen, I have a fruit tree that's suffering or dying. What happened to it? And that's all the information they give me. So I always ask for a photograph. And often they'll send me a photograph, and it is one of three things that they do 
um, that invariably kills their trees. Uh, number one, they plant them in gravel. Uh, you know, so we have these gravel landscapes here, and you can imagine what gravel might be like in June, July, and August. It's just like a solar oven out there. So they're planting in gravel, and that just cooks their trees. Or they plant in a lawn, uh, and lawns will outcompete your fruit trees. Um, so th- those two things are two of the big things that people do to, uh, uh, you know, to kill fruit trees. And the solution for both of them is the same. And the solution is putting a six to eight foot diameter basin around the tree where you remove the gravel or rake the gravel back, or you remove the grass, put the tree on a mound in the center so it's up at ground height, and then you fill that basin with woody mulch. And that woody mulch does multiple things for us. It uh, uh, holds water like a sponge. It creates a really nice um, insulation layer. And at the interface between the dirt and the woody mulch, very quickly you start getting this amazing soil that is, uh, you know, is growing down there. So, um, and we, we basically here in the desert have dirt which is broken down rock, and it's like good luck growing anything in it. So this uh, putting a basin of mulch around your tree adds a lot of um, organic matter to help the trees grow. So that's two of the things. Um, I just wanted to comment about the grass issue. That is incredibly common here as well. And I think so few people understand that fruit trees don't enjoy the competition. You know, right. um, and it makes it challenging, especially if it's a young fruit tree. So yep. um, people will also plant hostas around their fruit tree or they'll plant other other edibles, which is great, you know, creating a more sort of permaculture style garden. But they're just uh-huh. too close to the trees. And I, I see that right. again and again. Plus, plus, so this leads into the third thing that people do. Um, and when you're planting vegetables underneath your fruit trees, your vegetables need to be watered every two or three or four days. Your fruit trees need to be watered, you know, once every two to three weeks. So the watering pattern for each of, you know, for vegetables is different than fruit trees. And often what people do here in the desert is they put their fruit tree on a drip system. And that's just not enough water. Hmm. Yeah, so what, if you're not using a drip system, obviously, in in a dry environment there, and as I mentioned earlier in the show, our summers seem to be getting drier and drier, so more of us have to consider irrigation systems. So if you're not using a drip system, what are you using? Bubblers. It's, It's just a different head that you put on your system rather than putting a drip. Basically, rather than putting drip in place, you put... Uh, sprinklers in place, and rather than spray sprinklers, you put a bubbler on. So what I what I coach people to do is that they put a bubbler in each one of the basins for their trees. When the water comes, you know, then the then the watering system comes on. It fills the basin uh, with water uh, over the course of you know an hour or two, uh, and then you know you let it sit there for. You know, well, here in the desert, we like to water once a month in the winter and twice a month in the summer. Hmm. And that's, you know, when you're deep watering with a basin and a bubbler, that's plenty of water for these trees. And how long will you leave your bubblers bubblers on for? Well, that's kind of hard to answer uh, because the 
it depends on your soil. If you have really, really sandy soil, the water runs away very quickly. I know you've got clay soil up there. We have clay soil here. Um, you know, filling up the basin probably for an hour to an hour and a half is going to do it. Hmm. But you just you want to fill up that basin with water and then, uh, you know, and then let it sit for a couple of weeks. Because here's the deal with when you're overwatering a tree or you're underwatering a tree, the damage looks the same. So you really can't tell if, you know, if you're overwatering or underwatering unless you get a moisture meter. And I highly suggest, you know, go to your local nursery and get a, an $8 moisture meter to check and see, do these trees need to be watered? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely check very deep down because the, the, the top may feel wet, but then you stick your finger a little further in and it can be dry as dust. Yep. So um, we have some questions here from Cliff in Toronto. He has quite a few questions. Okay. <laughs> I'll ask a few of them. He asks, do you put your irrigation system on a timer? Absolutely. That's, you know, that way you don't even have to think about it. You just, you know, the first, the first and third Tuesday of every month, the timer goes off and fills up the basins and you're good to go. And so, are- yes. Yes, you do. So are you fussing around the trees in the middle uh, of those times and just sticking your fingers and seeing how dry they are? Um, or you just kind of leave it and just hope for the best? What? No, never. With fruit trees, when you're growing food, you never want to hope for the best. You always want to pay attention to what's going on in the space. And until you know, until the tree is established and until you know that they're getting the right water, you definitely want to jump in to check. What I found here in here in the warmer climate is that our every a deep water every two weeks with the mulch basins around the trees that is plenty. But I now know that, hmm. um, and until you actually discover that for yourself, you just can't you got you can't leave it to happenstance. You have to make sure exactly. And like you were saying, you know it from experience. We have different soil wherever our listeners are listening from. You'll have your own unique conditions, and so. I talk a lot about, you know, having a relationship with your tree, communicating with it in the sense of listening to it. Um, So, yeah, so I think it's really important that people start to play around with this and and see what happens. Now, we have Cliff writes again, what is this basin he is speaking about? And I would love it if at some point you could send me a picture. I'll put it on our Facebook page. But I'll try and summarize what you said. So you've planted your fruit tree in a mound that's a bit above the ground. And so it goes down in a donut around the mound. And that's where you're putting your mulch and and your wood mulch. So um, and that would insulate the tree's roots, which is awesome. Um, You know, here in Toronto or in colder climates, I wonder about, would that be enough to insulate the roots that people will have to play around with as well? Yeah, I that, you know, given that um, I'm allergic to snow, (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea on that answer for you. Well, you know what? We're going to have to cure you of that. you got to come here, check it out, skiing, ice skating. You'll love it. You'll want to move from Phoenix. You'll, well, you'll there you be... go. I have a good buddy that lives up there. I've known him for 20 years. He lives in 12. His name is Jason Babington, and uh, he's been trying to get me up there for a long time. Well, there you go. And if any of the listeners want to, uh, you know, make an argument of why Greg should check out 
you know, the colder climate of Canada and the colder places in the United States, please do write in. Okay, uh, another question here, again from Cliff, uh, our questioning person today. is <laughs> He's very keen. How many bubblers do you put around your trees? Well, that's, that really depends on your water rate. Um, usually, I just put one bubbler in the basin and, and let it fill you know, and let it fill the basin. So one bubbler is enough, and I guess everything will flow around in a circle, because, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay, let's move on briefly from irrigation, and let's talk a little bit about um, the types of trees that you guys plant in Phoenix. Do how, how do you choose the types of trees that may thrive in your unique conditions? Well, that started about... I- I planted my first fruit trees here in the valley in 1975. So that discovery began uh, back 42 years ago now. Uh, and I really dove in deep in the 90s. Um, and I've planted, myself personally, I've planted hundreds of fruit trees here in town. And I'm always experimenting. So I started years ago, I started with the list from our, uh, you know, our cooperative extension, um, or you know, I don't know if you have cooperative extensions up there, but sadly we don't. People that I started with their list and started practicing and experimenting with those trees because there's very specific trees that will do well here in the desert and ones that you know forget it, forget about it. And there's something with the deciduous trees. There's something called um, chill hours. And chill hours are, yeah, what, 35 to 45 degrees. And if we, we get in the desert, we've got about 350 hours of chill. Hmm. So if you're going to plant a fruit tree, a deciduous tree that requires more than 350 hours of chill, it's likely you're going to get, it's unlikely that you're going to get fruit. So chill hours is really, really important. Um, and honestly, chill hours is important wherever you go with deciduous fruit. Because if you were to plant a low chill tree, which is like 200 hours in Toronto, uh, you know, the, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So you need higher chill trees there. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other really big thing to look at is what rootstock are the trees on? Uh, rootstock is really important because there's specific rootstocks I'm sure that will do marvelously up there. But if we tried to plant a, you know, one of them down here, they would fail miserably. So being cognizant of what rootstocks work in your area is a really important uh, piece of the puzzle as well. So over there, you've had your years of playing around in research. You've figured out what works in your part of the world. Um, can you give me some examples of some of the fruit trees that you grow really, really well in Phoenix? Oh, my gosh, yes. So uh, in Arizona, uh, one of our five C's for our state is citrus. So pretty much any citrus you want to grow grows great in the low desert. Uh, then apple. There are two varieties of apples here that do really, really well and will give us bushels of apples at the Anna and the Dorset Golden. Um, and then there's about a dozen peaches that do really well, my favorite being the Desert Gold Peach. And then there's uh, Katie and Gold Kiss Apricots that do real well, and figs and pomegranates and uh, plums. Those are all 
there's varieties of all of those that do extraordinarily well here. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so now I understand that not only do you teach, but for people who live locally, you actually distribute fruit trees. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Absolutely. So, <clears throat> excuse me, my first thing is education. It's so very important for me to get people educated. And so I, starting in the fall, I offer free fruit tree classes here in town, and it's how to grow them, how to prune them, how to be successful with them, how to water them. We, we cover all those topics. And I actually do webinars as well. So people um, can take my webinars online or they can take classes from me in person. And then they have an opportunity to purchase pre-purchase fruit trees from my program, which they then pick up in January, February, and March. Um, so, and, and how many a year will you distribute or sell? Well, this is my 17th year. I know it's more than 20,000 so far. Although, last year we were at about 3,500 trees. This year we're at about 5,000 fruit trees that we're distributing. So wow. that, that 20,000 number is accelerating very quickly. And how do they get the trees from you? They come to your house and knock on your door? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I actually rent, I rent a warehouse here in Phoenix. Um, for, and I call this my pop-up nursery. We're only open uh, 18 days a year uh, in January, February, and March. And they come down, and we, we have, I have videos, planting videos and content and people, experts there to answer their tree questions and gardening questions. And um, they come down to the warehouse, which is in central Phoenix, and, you know, they get their trees from me, and they get coaching from me, and, you know, if once they plant their trees, if they have questions, they shoot me a picture and I answer, yeah, like that. That is so inspiring. And I, I don't know if you know this, many of our listeners are community orchardists um, who might even look at your model and think, well, this is something that we could do in our community, you know, to you help. Know to, that they, I would love yeah. to teach somebody about this model of tree, tree education and distribution. So anybody that's interested that wants to, Engage in that conversation. Like I said, I've been doing it 17 years. I've got it down. I can teach it. That's wonderful. That would be wonderful because from my experience, you know, here in Toronto and the people that I teach across the country, the biggest mistake that people make is they they start with the wrong trees. They just pick up a tree from the garden center, a familiar variety, and they pop it in the ground, water it a bit, and just hope for the best. And it really... Is, is doesn't work that way, sadly. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Yeah. So that's great to have you as a resource there. So let's see. Well, we have to wrap up in a minute, but before we do, I, I must hear about your own garden. I understand that in your garden you have 70 fruit trees. Is that true? Yep. On a third of an acre, I have uh, 70 fruit trees. Um, we So the urban farm is right in the middle of Phoenix. If you stood on my roof and looked 50 miles in each direction, um, you would see houses, and it's it's you know it's just it's in the middle of the city. So I have a third of an acre. That's about fourteen thousand square feet, uh, and uh, that's eighty feet wide and one hundred and sixty feet deep. And on the property, I have somewhere around eighty fruit trees. We've got chickens. I have three different kinds of solar panels. Uh, the entire the front yard is entirely edible. Uh, we got some food growing in the back, although the chickens get to roam in the backyard. Mm-hmm. So it sounds yeah, like wonderful. That. I mean, and, that, and that I like to call it an environmental showcase home. I like the mm, people. Yeah. I bring people in here on tours and classes uh, to you know to wow. learn about this stuff. 
lucky locals who can come and and participate in those. That sounds great. What do you do with all that food? I mean, it's from 70 fruit trees? Yeah. So um, the way I've got this designed, I I designed it from a permaculture perspective on a forest kind of concept. So I don't have, you know, with the exception of citrus and peaches, I don't have tons of, you know, tons of product. I have basically enough to eat and share with my neighbors. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. You can send yeah. some over to Toronto. Um, we have absolutely nothing growing right now in our yard, so there you go. Feel sorry for us <laughs> <laughs> and send it over there. So, Greg, I, I so appreciate you coming on the show. Can you can you tell the listeners how they can find out a little bit more about you and what you do? Absolutely. So urbanfarm.org is our website. Um, I was just uh, remembering that if you go to urbanorchard.org, there is a sign-up for our uh, fruit tree interviews, videos, and how-to guides, um, and which uh, that also has a bunch of our podcast interviews on it and some videos. So that's at urbanorchard.org. Um, but urbanfarm.org is my website, and I've been have had it up and running for almost 20 years now. That's just so wonderful, and I hope our conversation continues. You're doing such great stuff, and it is an honor to have you on the show today. Right back at you. When we had talked about you coming down and seeing us in August and speaking at one of our uh, one of our day-long fruit tree events. So well, I want to continue that conversation as well. That sounds great. That's wonderful. Well, thanks, and I'm going to say goodbye for now, but we shall speak again soon. Fantastic. Thank you, and thank you listeners for listening. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm, bye. In a few minutes, my next guest is going to introduce us to some of the wild plants that he's known and eaten over the years. We're going to be talking to wild food enthusiast Russ Cohen, and he's coming up after a word from our sponsors. So, and we were also just listening to Greg Peterson of Urban Farm U. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back after this short break. I want to be that guy who can say you're mine When we're standing in the movie line I want to pick you out of the crowd Shout it out so loud So everyone hears me And I would give Did you know that one of the best ways to ensure organic fruit tree growing success is to order the right tree for your unique conditions? You'll get the widest selection of cultivars from a specialist fruit tree nursery where you can find heirloom trees, disease-resistant varieties, and more. To download a free list of fruit tree nurseries in Canada and the United States, go to orchardpeople.com slash buy fruit trees. That's B-U-Y-Fruit-Trees. Enjoy the list and your new fruit tree. And learn more about how to care for your tree by signing up for my free monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com. My name is Mike McNair and I'm the manager of Universal Field Supplies. Universal Field Supplies specializes in products that are used by arborists 
their professional quality tools that uh, guys that use them every day need to rely on. So they tend to be higher quality than what's found in big box stores. The Universal Field Supplies product could be used by anybody that has trees and likes to look after trees. We've all been to school for forestry or arboriculture and we have many years of experience. We would be happy to answer any questions people have and actually ask questions of them and find out exactly what their needs are and determine what product would suit them the best. Don't hesitate to call Here's How to Reach Us. Call 1-800-387-4940 or email at info at ufsupplies.com. See you soon. Universal Field Supplies has stores in Mississauga, Ontario and Coquitlam, B.C., Visit UniversalFieldSupplies.com for more information. The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And burn the axis of the world that's why I prefer. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. So, in the first half of the show, I chatted with Greg Peterson of Urban Farm U about growing fruit trees in the desert. Overcoming the challenges of nature can be really difficult. But what if growing edible plants and trees could be just a little bit easier? So my next guest is Russ Cohen of Arlington, Massachusetts, and he sees himself as a bit of a modern-day Johnny Appleseed. But instead of planting apple seeds far and wide... Russ is propagating and giving away native edible plants and trees. So, are native plants really easier to grow? And really, does the, product, does the produce actually taste good? During the interview, I'd really love to hear from you about any native edible plants that you may grow wherever you live. Is it really worthwhile? In the meantime, we're going to chat with Russ Cohen about his experiences. So Russ is on the line with me now, and as we chat, you can email in your questions and comments to instudio101 at gmail.com. Hi, Russ. How are you today? Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm doing terrific. And I'm just wondering, I know that you are super keen on planting and growing native edible plants. How did this adventure all begin for you? Well, uh, I started connecting to the outdoors through my taste buds when I was a sophomore in high school. I took a mini course that the high school biology department offered called Edible Botany. 
and we learned about two dozen species of plants that grew around the high school, and then we had a communal meal from the plants we had learned about. And that was the spark that ignited this lifelong passion I have. So I went to the town library, took out every book I could find in the topic, taught myself over 70 more species, and then by senior of high school, I was teaching that class I'd taken as a sophomore. So describe to me in this class, you know, I'm just imagining, you know, a little feast after the class. What kind of things were you finding in the schoolyard? What kind of things were you eating out of the schoolyard? Oh, plants like oxeye daisy and dandelions and wintercress and sheep sorrel. These are, um, you know, some native, but a lot of uh, what they would call naturalized species, uh, things like chicory and burdock uh, that are, are in our landscape. They're not native, they're not invasive either, and they're delicious, and so I was very happy to learn about them. Okay, so so there you are, you're actually even teaching this close course. Where did you go from there? Well, I had a regular career working, uh, uh, I was actually trained as a lawyer, worked for the Mass Fish and Game Department, taking care of rivers and stuff, but in the meantime, I was teaching these wild edibles classes all over New England and upstate New York, just uh, connecting people to the outdoors to their taste buds and teaching them, you know, the native species of edible, edible invasives and edible uh, weeds and all that stuff, anything that you'd encounter in the landscape that was edible, uh, mushrooms too, I would teach people. And then when I retired from my day job um, in June of 2015, I branched out into actually propagating and planting edible natives in gratitude for how grateful I am that Mother Nature has been so kind to me these many decades and give me all these wonderful things to nibble on. I wanted to return the favor and help make the landscape more edible. Okay, so then how does that look? What exactly are you doing right now? Well, I have set up a nursery about 15 minutes from where I live where I'm propagating plants from seed and also acquiring them from other places like native plant nurseries and stuff, and I'll grow them out to a certain size. And then I'm partnering with cities and towns, state and federal agencies, schools and colleges just to plant this stuff in appropriate places in the landscape. And I've been able to do nine projects like that in the past year. Wow, that sounds terrific. And you're supplying these plants for free. You're just, it's your way of, yeah. So, and, and so you said that they're keen. What's happening from there? Once these plants are out in these wild, wild areas, do you know that right. people actually acknowledge them and are picking them and are nibbling them? Yeah, well, it depends on the policies of the partner that I'm working with. Like, for example, uh, if it's an Audubon Society property, they usually don't want people picking stuff there. But that doesn't deter me from partnering with a group like that because... If the plant is there, first of all, it's a native species, so it's going to benefit the ecology anyway, the pollinators and the wildlife and stuff like that. And as you know, birds love to poop out seeds, and they start growing in other locations. So a bird might visit a Juneberry bush growing in an Audubon sanctuary, and another bush will start growing in a place like uh, along an edge of a bike path or a school ball field or a vacant lot or someplace where it is okay for people to go foraging. Well, so here... that can happen. Uh-huh. And in the meantime, they can learn about uh, these native edibles as they see them growing in the places and then say, hey, I'd like to have one of those in my yard. And then, of course, they can pick it. And we have an interesting question from Robert. I don't know where Robert is, but he says... Do you supply any of these edible foods to restaurants? What a great idea. No. No. no I'm actually I'm actually a complete conscientious objector from the whole restaurant scene because I've gotten very concerned about the commodification and the monetization of wild plants when I see them become articles of commerce 
And unfortunately, I've seen irresponsible activities go on in the woods uh, driven by people that are converting plants to cash. So, Ooh, no, interesting. I don't, I, I'm not involved in the restaurant. You, you might imagine I get calls from chefs all the time saying, you know, tell me what you know and stuff like that. And I'm just, uh, I just don't like to do that. And yet, I'm much more interested in connecting people to these plants directly, uh-huh. uh, not through an intermediary like a restaurant or a fancy produce market. I want them to learn how to find the plants and and appreciate it because that's part of the fun of foraging is being outdoors and actually connecting to nature uh, not just ordering something f- off a fancy restaurant menu. Well, that's interesting, and it sounds very democratic, actually. You know, we should all have access. So give me a few um, of your favorite edible plants that, that we should all know about, at least if we live somewhere nearby where they kind of grow successfully. Right. Well, I'll tell you, stuff. I've made up a list, which I posted online, of the edible wild plants that are native to the northeast U.S. and eastern Canada. So just about everything on my list would grow where you are. Oh, good to know. Okay. And and even if it doesn't occur natively where you are, you could still grow it. Like beach plum, for example, is one of my favorite native edibles. Ordinarily, you're going to find it in the sand dunes right near the ocean. But as long as it grows in a sunny, well-drained area, it should do fine. Okay, beach plum. So that's something that you just eat fresh. You wouldn't cook with it? or Oh, no, you can absolutely cook with it. In fact, most people do make beach plum jam with it because it's a fruit with a little bit of an edge to it, kind of like if you compare a crab apple to an apple. So a crab apple is going to make a much nicer jelly than an apple because it's going to have a lot more character to it. Well, the same thing would be true with a beach plum, hmm. that that's a really excellent way to use it is to make jam from it. But I've the, the ripe fruit is about the size of a Bing cherry, so it's big enough that you can pit it and use it for recipes like strudel, which is one of my favorite mm. ways. Oh, that sounds so good. We have an email from Claudette, and interesting. She says, any advice on identifying edible mushrooms? So when you talk about your, you know, your wild foods, is is edible mushrooms part of your repertoire? Yes, it absolutely is. I enjoy foraging for edible mushrooms and teaching people about them. But it is uh, a much uh, riskier thing than plants because uh, I can't speak... This isn't a worldwide comment, but at least for our region here, the vast majority of poisonous plants taste horrible, so I encourage people not to eat plants that taste bad. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that rule does not apply to mushrooms. Uh, in fact, some of the deadliest mushrooms, there's absolutely no indication from the flavor whatsoever that there's anything to worry about. So uh, you could actually potentially kill yourself from picking and eating wow. the wrong kind of mushroom. Having said that, you can arrange all the mushroom species that are in a line and cluster to one end of those species that are virtually impossible to confuse with anything poisonous versus those that are at the other end of the line that even the experts can't tell apart. And as long as you stay at the safe end of the line and you gradually work your way out as you gain experience and confidence, that's how to stay out of trouble. Um, if cluttered- just about every Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. Just about every area uh, I know of will have a local mushroom club that will go out during mushroom season for that particular area. And that is absolutely the best way to learn is to join the club, go on a foray with them, see the mushrooms that people find, and just start asking questions. And that's much uh, better way to learn mushrooms than like from a book, for example. Yeah, that's interesting. Claudette, if you are still listening, which I'm sure you are, tell us where you live um, and it's just be interesting. Hopefully you do have a mushroom club near you. So basically, Russ, you wouldn't say, well, this is my favorite mushroom identification book. That's not something that you're going to, 
suggest? Oh, I have one. Okay. Uh, it's Gary Lincoff's book that was put out by our National Audubon Society. It's got a maroon leatherette cover. And the reason I like it is because his photos, the color photos in that book, are in situ. That means you're seeing little hints from the landscape surrounding the mushroom that give you little clues about the kind of habitat the mushroom likes. So I find that better than trying to learn mushrooms from, like, a, a line drawing, for example. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Okay, so we were talking, your first favorite was beach plums. Let's talk about another, you know, wild native edible that you love. Sure. Well, let me say, since you kind of gave a hint about plants that it might be easy for people to propagate, mm-hmm. I looked through my list of 150, because there's more than 150 edible native species to the northeast U.S. and eastern Canada. But on the, of those, I've been able to successfully propagate 18 so far. Wow. And I've been at this for just about a year, so that's pretty good. And um, they vary as to um, how you do it, but I'll give you an example for the things that you throw in a fridge, because there's a process you probably know of called stratification, which is basically mimicking winter, is most of our native species have seeds that need to go through a winter in order to break their dormancy. Okay. And so one way to do it is just to, you know, use your regular fridge. I actually bought, you know, a little like dorm style fridge in my basement where I store my seeds. And you just put them in the little plastic bags. You might put a little moisture in there, a little water with a little vermiculite, something like that. And uh, and then they'll just mostly just sit there uh, waiting for you to pull them out and, and sow them. But for some species, like the beach plums that I mentioned before, and a wonderful native fruit called the juneberry, which is also called the shadbush and the serviceberry, uh, so I gathered the fruit last June, enjoyed the wonderful flavor of the fruit, saved the seeds, put them in a plastic bag, stuck them on my fridge. And then uh, it's a good thing to do if you do stratification with seeds is check those seeds uh, every few weeks or so. And what happened with my Juneberry seeds is they sprouted inside the little plastic bag in, in the fridge. In, in the, the fridge. Dark. Wow. And so when that happens, you have to sow them right away. So you can't wait until... Uh, spring, you got to put them in the dirt so they have somewhere to grow. And so in, I, I've got a, a solar room actually at my mother's house where I've been able to uh, sow them. And now they're an inch and a half tall already from seeds I just sowed uh, uh, just uh, about three weeks ago. Wow. Okay, we'll continue. I just have a message from Shelly. Hi, Susan. She's from Florida. And let's see what she says. Orlando, Florida. And she says, hi, Susan. Great show. Very interesting information. Thank you so much, Shelley. I love to hear from listeners. I love to hear from you guys out there and um, get your feedback, get your ideas. So thank you so much, Shelley. Okay, so we're talking about starting these seeds. So how cheap is that? You, you, you get your service berry, like berry, you get a berry from your service berry or June berry or whatever you call it, that beautiful tree shrub thing you eat the berry you spit out the seed you put it in the fridge and did you say you put anything else in that bag with your oh i just i just mixed it with a little vermiculite but in some cases you can just put the seed right in there so for example shagbark hickory which is my number one edible favorite whether it's native non-native invasive it's my number one favorite uh, edible wild plant and um, and those nuts are ripe in this area from about the middle of September through the end of October. 
Okay. And it's a really delicious nut. It tastes like a walnut that's been lightly sprayed with maple syrup. Hmm. Yeah. In the typical season, I'm gathering thousands of these nuts. And a few years ago, I, I said, you know, I like this tree so much, I should be growing it. And so I started saving a bunch of the nuts that uh, I gathered, you know, so, so most I would eat, but some I would save. So they need to go in the stratification fridge very soon after you pick them because um, I can't remember the, the botanical term for this, but these are seeds that can't dry out because they'll lose their viability. Mm-hmm. So if you let them sit uh, around like, you know, in the shell in your garage, for example, which is what I do with the ones that I eat, if they're there for more than a month, they lose their viability. And if you planted them, nothing's ever going to happen. Hmm. So, uh, all right, so I had these jackbrook hickories, and for the most part, a few of them sprouted, but most of them dutifully sat in their little plastic bags in the stratification fridge. And I sowed them in the spring, and they grew. The challenging thing with the shagbark hickory is that uh, it invests most of its effort in growing its taproot the first year. So what you get is you get about a five or six inch tall seedling showing above the soil, but the root is 14 inches or more long. Hmm. So you need to get something called a tree pot or very deep pot uh, that can accommodate all that root length. So that uh, this is, for, of course, for a tree that you haven't already identified the final location where you want to plant it. <clears throat> so if you're going to plant it in your yard, you can just do that. Put the seed in your yard. You don't have to use the pot technique. But one other important detail is you must cover the seed with some kind of protection, prevent the squirrels and chipmunks from digging it up. Oh, boy. Yeah, so I, I bet. Use, I use a half-inch mesh hardware cloth, which is that wire mesh. And if it's a half-inch uh, holes, then when the seed sprouts, it can very easily grow through the mesh. And leave it on there longer than you think you, you need to because until that nut is completely used up, the squirrels and chipmunks can still smell it and will still dig it up even after the tree has started to grow. Wow. So I'm speaking from painful experience. Oh. So anyway, so you can leave it on the first growing season if you want and then just take some wire cutters and cut carefully around it, pull it off, and then it should be fine. Because the nuts all used up, so there's no reason for the tree to be dug up anymore. No, I want to comment on shagbark hickories because we in Ben Nobleman Park community orchard, we have two of them there. And we're used to fruit trees, which, you know, grow at a certain pace, um, you know, some faster than others. Those shagbark hickories are very slow growing. You have to be a patient person to actually eat the fruit off those things. So actually, so a lovely choice for a community orchard or public orchard because, you know, it's not like you have to think about, will I be living there in 20 years' time when there's when there's food on that tree? I don't want right. to discourage people because they're beautiful trees. But, yes, just right. a little word of warning. So, right. No, a shagbark hickory tree is definitely an investment in the future. And I have no clue whether I'll be around to eat nuts from any of the trees that I'm planting, at least the shagbarks, because they take so long. But as you probably know this wonderful Chinese expression, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Yes. The second best time is now. Yes. Um, I'm going to take just a very, I want you to hold on the line. Don't go anywhere, Russ. We got more to talk about. Um, And uh, so we shall continue. But for the moment, let's go and hear a word from our sponsors. 
And we're also going to talk about some of the yummy recipes that you make with your wild foods. So for the listeners, I would love to hear from you. Have you ever foraged for wild edible plants? Tell us about it by emailing instudio101 at gmail.com. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back after this short break. You're always crazy like that And I watched from my window I always felt I was outside Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, Stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio 101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture, and lots more. Thanks for tuning in. So in this part of the show, we are talking about native edible plants that are low maintenance and easy to grow from seed. And on the line is wild foods enthusiast Russ Cohen from Arlington, Massachusetts. So, Russ, you're still on the line, I hope. I am, I am. And I'm glad you mentioned the low-maintenance part because your previous guest, Greg, who sounds terrific, by the way, um, he's planting fruit trees that he has to prune. And I hate pruning. I just <laughs> hate to, <laughs> to cut any live branches off of anything, uh, even though I know it's good for the tree and it's good for fruit production and stuff like that. I just have the hardest time doing it psychologically. But with these native species, these are plants that Mother Nature isn't pruning except in a storm. You know, these are plants that are able to grow pretty well on their own once they get established. So they don't need any fertilization or watering or anything, provided that you've 
selected the right place for them to grow that um, approximates the natural conditions in which they would occur naturally. So, so that's a, a bit of a break for me. Well, and that's great. And, and so with regards to maintenance, so you don't need to prune them, but what do you need to do with most of these plants? Can you say that or does each one have its own needs and demands? Uh, yeah, they, they do vary quite a bit. So uh, some plants are very good um, at um, doing quite well without any attention whatsoever, like wild strawberry, for example, one of my favorite plants. Um, it's easy to grow from seed. You can also grow it from just separating the plants at the runners. You know, they stick out these little stolons and set out little satellite plants here and there. And you can just, once the little satellite plant has developed roots, you can just pot it up and move it to a new location to get it started. And uh, those are plants that will just fill in patches in, you know, a turf area, lawn area. So if you have any kind of a lawn that's a natural lawn without any chemicals or anything, Wild strawberry would be great addition to it, as would uh, violets, just the viola cereria, the, the uh, native uh, blue violet, what it's called, to this area. I love, well, I, I call them alpine strawberries. I think they're like wild strawberries, are they not? We grow alpine strawberries. Yeah, and alpine strawberry, I believe, is a variety of Chilean strawberries, so uh-huh. it isn't the native one. It's still a delightful one. I have that one, too. Oh, my goodness, uh, is it delightful. It's ever-bearing. Um, they're both good, but uh, there is a native choice, which is delightful choice. So if people feel like they want to plant native, it's a great native strawberry. Now, we're talking about native. What, is, what does native actually mean? Like, how far away is native? <laughs> right. Well, good question. And, the, you know, depending upon who you're talking to, you're going to get a variety of different responses to it. Uh, in general, you're looking for plants that would naturally occur near to where you are. Uh, but... Um, some people define it geographically, like the county. Some people define it by ecoregion, which I think is appropriate. So, for example, black walnuts. I plant black walnuts. They're all over the place around here. Uh, the botanists don't consider it to be technically native to Massachusetts, but it grows in Connecticut, and Connecticut is within our same ecoregion, so I consider it native to this hmm. area. Now, we have an email from Mike. Um, he wants to know, do you have a website like, you know, he'd love to have more information, I suppose, about the different types of plants you're talking about. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time in front of my computer, and so I don't have a separate URL or anything. But uh, if you Google Russ Cohen or type it into any search engine, you will easily find me. And you'll find a lot of stuff about my wild edibles classes. And as I am um, developing more to say about this planting edible natives. There'll be more on there about that, too. Okay, we don't have that much more time, but I have to ask you, I understand that you and your wife have interesting dinner parties with wild native edibles. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, we used to throw these parties where we'd serve three dozen different dishes all made with wild edible ingredients and, um, you know, have dozens of people over and stuff like that. And that's quite a production. It takes sort of months of preparation as you're gathering everything and processing it and then making the various things and stuff. So we've scaled that down quite a bit. And we'll still do um, edible cooking for our friends. And when I do programs, I always take some sort of forage goodie with me so people get to taste how wonderful all this stuff is, because I think there's still a conception on the part of some people that, yeah, edible wild plants, that's something I should know if all the supermarkets close and my garden completely dies and I'm desperate and I have to find something to fill my belly. 
<laughs> well, a lot of this stuff is really yummy, like the, the June berries that I mentioned before. Uh, they taste uh, like a, a hybrid of um, uh, almonds and cherries together. Mm. Uh, and they're really yummy. It's a fun thing to just stuff your face right by the tree. And give me a few of the recipes that are your favorite recipes that you would make, whether with June berries or some of the oh, other Oh, sure. Stuff. Well, um, June berries are also good in strudel, like I use. Uh, and I'll combine June berries and mulberries together for strudel. And for the, the shagbark hickory, um, I make a maple hickory nut pie. The recipe's in my book, uh, which is the New England equivalent of the pecan pie. And just about everybody I serve it to prefer it over pecan pie. Um, it's really yummy. And um, there's, um, um, you know, a lot of the weeds and invasives that I'm eating. So I'll make pie from Japanese knotweed that's very good. And I'll make a, an hors d'oeuvre from burdock that's very good. So as I say, you know, I'm happily eating that stuff too. But in terms of what I'm planting, I'm just planting the, uh, the natives. So uh, one of the uh, species I'm planting is staghorn sumac. And I hope your listeners know that any sumac that has red berries is nothing to worry about. It's not poison sumac. Poison sumac has drooping clusters of uh, yellowish white berries. So all the red fruited sumacs are actually edible. And the main thing you do with them is you make a lemonade like drink from them. It's very easy. Hmm. So I, I will serve that to my programs too. So for those of us that, that don't live near you, I, I got a question as well from one of the listeners saying, well, how can we get the plants from you? Can we buy them and order them from you wherever we live? But I understand that it's not like you don't, you don't sell them to the public. So what advice do you have for all of us about, about exploring native plants? Right. Well, what you can find out from me is you can find out what's native and what's edible because I've got that list online and I'll make sure that you, Susan, have a link to it when we're done. Great. And uh, I'll put and it, then, yes, that's great. I'll put it on my web website and on our Facebook page. Yep. Right. So people will see it there and then they can take that list to their local nursery and say, have you got anything on this list? Uh, and then if they and, and also there are, I'm happy to say, an increasing number of nurseries that are specializing in native plants here in the Northeast. There's at least a dozen of them, which is great. And I've been telling them to play up the edibility of a lot of the plants they have as a way of appealing to their customers to encourage them to plant native because Although the main reason to plant native is ecological, and it's a very good reason, I think the you-can-eat-it too factor is a really powerful motivating factor that will get a, a larger constituency for these plants to put them in their yard. I guess that the, our, our planet would be a lot healthier if more of us were really more conscious about planting native plants, edible and not edible. Is that your opinion? Oh, sure. Uh, I think we should definitely go that route. It's just, uh, as I like to say, you can have your acorn cake and eat it, too. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> I'd love some acorn cake right now. <laughs> oh, Russ, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I feel like we could continue this conversation at some point. Hopefully we will. So thank you for, be great. for coming on the show today. You're most welcome. Okay, goodbye for now. Bye. That was Russ Cohen from Arlington, Massachusetts, and you can Google his name to find out some find some more resources. I'll also get his list and I'll put it on orchardpeople.com and on Orchard People's Facebook page, so you'll get access to it there.
Well, the Urban Forestry Radio Show is almost over. But before we wrap up, I would so like to thank my two special guests, Greg Peterson of UrbanFarm.org from Phoenix, Arizona, and wild food enthusiast Russ Cohen from Arlington, Massachusetts. We have lots more great interviews coming up next month, so do tune in again. The Urban Forestry Radio Show runs on the last Tuesday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern on RealityRadio101.com. And of course, if you missed part of this show or if you want to listen to some of our previous episodes, all you have to do is download the podcast. Just visit OrchardPeople.com slash podcast. And you can meet some of the other fantastic people I've interviewed on the show. While you're there, please do sign up for my monthly newsletter, which is packed with great information about fruit trees, forest gardens, permaculture, and more. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you again next month. to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.